Hello everyone and welcome here. Um, so over the next few minutes, I'll be explaining to you my research on adaptation strategies to flooding in Nigeria, specifically in Benin City, which is where my university is based. Now for those of us who are popular with Afro music, how many of us have heard about Fela? You like his music? <laughs> yeah. So one of his popular tracks is Water No Get Enemy, right? It essentially means that water has no enemies. And when we think about it in that context, I think that song was supposed to portray how important water is in every aspect of our lives. So basically for washing, cleaning, eating, food production, practically everything you can't do without water. Although I think from Fela's context, he was probably also making a political statement with that song. Because essentially for him, it was to say that without the people, the government can't function. So water has both a, an ecological meaning, a spiritual meaning, a physical meaning, and also a sociopolitical meaning. But in the context of my discussion today, I think we need to think about flooding in the context of having no enemies as well. So when we think about flooding, a lot of the times we think about it as a disruption, as a problem. But that's essentially because the structures we have in place, the social ecological structures we have in place, are not suited to dealing with flooding problems. So it then becomes a problem. But more and more, we're looking at sustainability science in the area of water, trying to capitalize on flooding and water issues as a resource rather than being a problem. So in the context of this, my discussion is going to show how people have tried to adapt to flooding to cope with it and to see how these coping strategies or adaptation strategies they've adopted have either been successful or not successful and why, especially in low-income settings. So the presentation is essentially going to cut across five main issues. A general description of Benin City, an introduction into the governance structure or governance architecture for flooding and urban management generally within the context of Benin, the coping strategies employed by people, and probable pathways to ensuring that these coping strategies are successful or more effective, and then how, enhance, how we can enhance adaptation strategies within that context. Now, Benin City is the capital of Edo State. So it's part of the Niger Delta region, for those of us who know about the Niger Delta. And it often experiences flash floods, especially during the rainy season. So when it rains, it really rains. It's been raining since I got here, but this would qualify more as drizzles in the context of Edo State. <laughs> so it really rains, and when it rains, we have flash floods. And usually that's because where the drainage systems exist, they're either blocked or they're poorly constructed or they're just not enough to carry the, enough to carry the water that comes through from the rain. And when this happens, it disrupts activities. So you have long traffic lines, you have people not being able to go from one part of the city to the other part of the city, and then you have businesses being shut down. And you also have damage to the roads, to infrastructure, because of the flooding that occurs. Now, in terms of the governance structure, urban management generally has a multi-level governance structure in the context of Nigeria. So the federal, we have a federal system in Nigeria. There's a federal government, and then we have the state government, and then the local government. Now, each of these levels of government shares some responsibility for flood management or urban management generally. The federal government usually sets the tone for policy, for policies, and then the tone for actual interventions. The state government often has to implement the policies at, within their jurisdiction, and then also implement strategies and projects that would actually ensure that the urban management objectives are achieved. And then the local government also has some role to play in terms of coordination of local efforts. Usually, the local government has a more direct impact in the local communities because they are closest to the local communities. Now, 
in terms of the policy drive, within Edo State, for instance, a lot of a lot of reliance has been placed on the national law. So we have a national act that deals with urban management and planning, and that act is also relevant within the context of Edo State. But very recently, the, the House of Assembly within the state has been has been working on a new law that would actually govern urban management policies and prospects within the state specifically, rather than relying on the federal laws. Now, this is, has its merits because it would be more it would be more um, relevant to the local context since it's a law that is being made by members of the community or members of the legislature within that context in the state, Edo state. But what we find is it mirrors very closely the provisions in the federal act as well. And a lot of the provisions in both the federal act and the proposed state law are usually tailored towards engineering solutions to the flooding problem. So there's a lot of emphasis on getting a permit for infrastructure, and there's also a lot of emphasis on building things like stormwater drainage systems, technological solutions to the flooding problem. And this has its merits, but it also has its demerits, as we'll show in the context of this conversation. Now, these three levels of governance, if, to a very large extent, there's no coherence in how the policies are implemented. So where, whereas the policies look good on paper, the laws are there on paper, but when it comes to actual implementation, there's a disconnect. So for instance, the fact that before you erect a building, you need to get permits from the government, especially within the, within the jurisdiction of the state, you need to get permits from the state government, and then the state government has to ensure that whatever structure you want to put in place is not going to cause problems. For instance, you're not going to be blocking drains, or you're not going to be building in floodplains or creating more problems for the environment. Usually in practice, we find that people erect buildings and they probably don't get the right licenses. And sometimes licenses are requested for retrospectively. So you have situations where the local authority comes and puts a sign saying, bring down this building because it's causing one problem or the other. But in, actual, in the actual sense of whether that building will come down or not is a different thing. So there's a lot of underlying political issues and there's a lot of incoherence in how these policies are actually implemented on the ground. And of course, in the context of low low-income settings, they probably would not have the facilities in terms of the finances to be able to actually erect the kind of infrastructure that would be needed for a technological solution to flooding problems. So we find that that technological solution doesn't really work in the context of low-income settings. Another, another thing we find in the context of governance of governance architecture, architecture of flooding in Nigeria is that there's a difference between what is in the books and what is practiced locally. So a lot of the times the community, the households rely on local knowledge and understanding of their environment to actually come up with solutions to the flooding problems. And because the government doesn't really have a hands-on approach in terms of actually monitoring what people do, there's a disconnect between what the engineering solution or the formal solutions would be and what actually goes on in practice. A third thing is then that there's a minimal interaction between those informal solutions or informal systems and the formal knowledge systems or formal um, governance systems. And fourthly, we have a limited capacity for enforcement, clearly because the local government isn't really well equipped. So at the end of the day, some of the solutions, so-called solutions, which are counterproductive, do not get nipped in the board and they go ahead and create more problems in the long run. And then finally, like I already mentioned, there's an emphasis on technical solutions or technology. And this technology may not be accessible to people. And essentially, in terms of the effectiveness of technology, we find that there are other important factors because while you may have a technology, if people do not have the right knowledge, 
to handle or use this technology productively, then it could cause more problems. So for instance, if you have a drainage system and people for one reason or the other start to put waste in the drainage system which blocks it, then the drainage system will not achieve the result which it's supposed to achieve. So essentially, while technology has its merits, there are also non-technical factors which are more social that need to be taken into account. And this would include capacity of the people to actually engage with this technology productively and also their understanding of how the technology should work and even maintenance for instance, because if the local people all, all have to rely on external people to come and maintain then there could be a problem especially in the context of low-income settings so what has happened is there's a picture there's a picture there which shows a road I think I may have skipped okay so when I showed the first um, slide with the map there's a road there which is supposed to be the Lagos Benin expressway so it's an expressway a federal road and this is a road when it becomes flooded now this flood has happened it's a federal road but clearly people using the road are everyday people and they have to find a way of dealing with the problem and I'll show you how they've tried to deal with it so in essence while it's a federal road and the responsibility of the federal government to maintain this road the problem that results actually affects people at the level of the state and at the local level and they try to come up with solutions which may not always be effective and which may not always be sanctioned by the federal government now what are the solutions people have tried to come up with i've tried to conceptualize the solutions into four main categories and one of them is isolation in that case people have a problem with flooding and then they decide on what would be the best solution to protect themselves or their properties from the damage that could result from flooding and a lot of the times when they carry out the solutions it's carried out in isolation in the sense that they do not take into consideration what their neighbors are doing and they also do not take into consideration what the effects of their actions would be on their neighbors so it's an isolationary approach to addressing the flooding problem now this solution is contrary i say it's contrary because it doesn't lead to an effective solution to the problem and i also say that it's insignificant is of insignificant intensity to the extent that it doesn't take into consideration a good understanding of what the environmental impacts would be or what other people's responses would be. Now, another, another approach we usually find is alliance to the extent that people get involved. So at the community level, we would find community meetings Sometimes you have house owners in a, in a neighborhood coming together to try and look for a common solution to their problems. So people get involved, they talk about the problem, and then they try to forge solutions. But sometimes you find that they agree on a solution, but when it comes to actual implementation, some people do not get involved, maybe because of the costs, or maybe because they think that the benefits which they will gain from that intervention outweigh the monies they would have to spend in terms of getting the solution running. So as a result of that, you have them aligning themselves with the preparatory processes but refusing to get involved in the actual implementation and refusing to invest in the process and so I've described that as being alliance now on the top um, right corner there's competition in that case people understand what the problem is they understand the possible consequences of their actions but they refuse to do things in connection with other people because they probably have the resources to be able to capture whatever solutions they are and use it for their own benefits irrespective of how it would affect other people in the environment or even the actual environment in itself beyond the effects on the humans in the environment but the ideal situation would be one of cooperation and for me cooperation is a situation in which people understand how their actions impact on the environment they also understand what the neighbors would be doing or the other people in their environment would be doing to react to this problem and they try to see how best to reach a solution that would be a win-win solution in the sense that they protect themselves but they also do not cause harm to other people in the environment 
government so that would be the ideal situation one of cooperation and it's i've described it here as being affirmative in the sense that it is positive and that it's also of significant intensity in the outcome which it produces so an example of isolation would be this the story behind this picture is the flood the picture i showed you earlier that had flooding what happened is because the water would gather as more and more rain fell the water would begin to go forward into people's neighborhoods and this is one of the neighborhoods that was then affected this picture over here used to be a road so it was an untired road but at least it was passable but because of all the water coming in on that side is a petrol station so the petrol station built a barrier around themselves and as a result of that the water couldn't flow anymore forward and the water started coming back into that street and that is how that street became the way it has become now on the other side the story building there is a new complex being set up that person bought the property and realized that if he left it like that the water would come into his own property and so he also built a barrier around his property so on both sides they built barriers and then the water is being forced into down the streets and so that's an example of how people build barriers that protect themselves but because they do it in isolation it compounds the problem for the collective now this is an example of competition in this case what they did is that they channel the water away from themselves and this is the part the water would then take over time because the water would take that part consistently it has started to erode the road so the road is becoming damaged now this is the other side of the flooded part that i showed you before now so at the end of the day you're protecting they're protecting themselves but because they're channeling the water away from themselves because they understand that the water can be channeled out of their own properties to the adjoining property they are creating more problems again for the collective now this is alliance in this case this is when i described to you about people actually getting involved in what should be the solution but because maybe the cost is too much for them to bear or they think the benefits they will derive from that collective solution is not worth it they decide to do something that would benefit them directly so this is alliance and the effect of this is we have high rates of i mean there have been cases of people dying because of the flood there have been cases of children for instance there was once a child coming back from school was crossing the road and then got you know carried away by the flood water so there's been mobility mobility mortality rather and mobility loss of lives loss of livelihoods economic livelihoods loss of property value and then there's been people moving away from the community because of the flooding problem and there's some pictures to show this so this used to be a shop but then the store owner had to shut it down because of course no one's going through that road anymore and they've also built some kind of embankment you can see the something they've built in front to raise the front of the building such that water doesn't come in when it rains and then this used to be a petrol station but they've also had to put so much sand in front of it that cars can no longer drive in to buy petrol from them so this the petrol station is more or less losing business is more or less shut down now this used to be a timber market where people used to sell wood but of course because of the flooding problem it's no longer in business and this used to be a road in front of a house but the road is no longer passable and so They've also lost the property has also lost value because people can no longer come here to live as a result of this problem. Now, in the context of all of this, I see that cooperation is the main ideal situation we should be looking at, but then it is not what exists on the ground. So there are other solutions that people are adopting which may not be the best, including competition, isolation, and alliance. My background is in law, but I understand that, for instance, there are people working in sustainable water management more from a technical aspect that try to map 
people's approaches to flooding and people's adaptation strategies. So I think that it will be important for the lawyers to actually collaborate with these technical fields and see how best we can try and convert people's actions or try and incentivize people to move from competition alliance or isolation to actual cooperation because cooperation is the ideal situation in which we're able to get a win-win for both individuals the collective and of course the environment as well so here i've put down six probable pathways to cooperation but there could be more of course depending on the local context so the ideal would be to move from competition to cooperation and to do that for instance there has to be different levels of orders of learning so first of all because in competition people already have an understanding of what the environmental consequences are then that should be encouraged so that understanding should be encouraged but beyond that we have to try to change people's assumptions as well the assumption that protecting oneself is the most important thing and once we protect ourselves in the short term then we can ensure that we do not suffer consequences in the long term that's a wrong assumption because clearly if a flood occurs even though one's property is protected the fact that a flood occurs and there could be some kind of disease outbreak one cannot be protected from that for instance so those assumptions need to be corrected at second order learning and then finally there has to be an emphasis on also showing that there's need to move from a focus on just one's own beliefs or one's own assumptions and protection to actually ensuring the collective good because at the end of the day once the environment is protected then the benefits are more sustainable and it's more widespread and more consistent for everybody in the environment so competition would then require three at least three levels of learning and then isolation would require for instance more knowledge because at that level the people really do not understand how their actions affect other people so it will be important that we invest more in improving people's understanding of the environmental consequences of their actions and how their actions would affect other people in the environment. So not just the environmental consequences, but also the social consequences as well. And at the level of alliance, it will be important to try and convince people about the need for negotiation of the benefits. So the fact that they already understand the environmental consequences is already a good step. But beyond that, they need to understand how to move from just focusing on what benefits them as individuals and to see how best they can actually get involved in the actual implementation of the collective solutions that have been reached. So these are the three or these are the six pathways that have, I think could be considered in the long term. In terms of adaptation strategies and enhancing, so that's what I've just explained. Isolation, there needs to be more knowledge. Competition, there needs to be negotiation and then change of assumptions. And alliance, there needs to be integration between what people do in the individual space with what happens at the collective level. And for cooperation, cooperation is the ideal system, so we need to just try and reinforce that. But of course, as I've shown in the example here, we really don't have a situation of cooperation just yet. So in, a, in essence, for me, when it comes to enhancing adaptation strategies in low-income settings, we need to look beyond just the focus on technology to so also look at the non-technical aspects, especially capacity and then knowledge as well. And if we think about it in the broader context of the tragedy of the commons, for instance, the fact that once you have commons, there will always be this tendency for people to want to just protect themselves, get what they can without actually putting more into protecting it from damage. So that's something that needs to be addressed. And that is something that cannot be addressed sustainably through just technology in itself. It has to be addressed by combining both technology and soft but what we would call the softer elements, but non-technical aspects like knowledge, knowledge dissemination, um, trying to promote um, collective, the collective good and collective outcomes, rather than focusing on just individual benefits or individual outcomes. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're All right, questions.